And hello, everybody. Welcome to Crossed Up, another edition of our Phillies podcast here on the Crossing Broad Network. This is Anthony Sanfilippo at AntSanPhilly on Twitter, joined as always by our uh, Phillies writer here on Crossing Broad, Bob Wankel, at BW Crossing Broad. How you doing, Bob? I'm all right. How we doing tonight? Big Phillies win, 6-5 over that powerhouse Cincinnati Reds team to improve to 4-5. and five. I'm excited. A little positivity here, uh, recording on a Monday night right after the game, so I'm sure that this will be a... All sunshine and roses. If I know us too, I'm sure we'll have a lot of positive things to say tonight. There's nothing but positive tonight. Are you kidding me? There's nothing but positive. They had a lot of good. They had a home run from Reese Hoskins, who had another two hits and a walk. His OPS is 1.374 through nine games. Um, Michael Franco got another hit and another RBI. Trying um, to hit the ball the other way. Did yeah, you see that tonight? Going up the middle, up the going, middle. Uh, going yeah. the other way. Yeah, look at him, man. Scott uh, Kingry got his first home run. and Broke out the nine iron, chipped it right off the ground. And now that, was, that was impressive. <laughs> and, and yeah, a lot Williams. of good things. And Nick yeah, Williams and with the Nick big Williams? blow. Yeah, they yeah. dusted him off easy. Went to bed on time last night. And <laughs> That's right. Big home run in the, well, in he the eighth to win it. Yeah. He didn't want to go extra innings because he needed to get home in time <laughs> yeah. to play the video game. So, yeah. Oh, man. Poor guy. Poor you, do guy. you think he fires the manager when, when he plays MLB 18? I think so, yeah. Okay, just Absolutely. Right, just yeah. making sure. Uh, no, right. no doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, but balls, also, balls hit the right field, and he just keeps the right fielder there and lets him hit it inside <laughs> the parker. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, so Phillies, nice win. Um, it's not like they're playing, you know, the top of the of the National League at this point, but that's okay. I mean, you got to play who's on your schedule and when they're on your schedule. And the, you know, the Phillies get a little bit of an early season reprieve here, getting the Marlins and the Reds back to back, and uh, they're taking advantage of it, and that's a good thing. We have a lot of good things that we want to talk about um, with the Phillies and, and guys that are playing well. But there are – I mean, it's been a week since we've been uh, on the podcast, and a lot has happened around this team since last Tuesday. I mean, a lot has happened. Um, stuff that happened in New York, uh, stuff that happened uh, you know, with uh, the home opener, uh, and then that Marlins series, and then, of course, tonight with the Reds. And we're going to get to all of it. I'm telling you we're going to get to all of it. But let's, let's start with this game. I mean, this is the most recent thing, and this is the thing that everybody's going to be talking about uh, and want to talk about when they plug on our show tomorrow uh well but it'll, it'll be uh, it'll be tuesday uh when most people are tuning into to this episode so let's talk a little bit about this game against the reds tonight bob I mean, ben lively gets the start um it has a, a rough first inning as he's wont to do he, he really struggles in the early part of games and then settled in a little bit and then struggled again, <laughs> and like, it was like it was kind of weird. It was like a, settled in a little bit, yeah. What five and two thirds, nine hits, five earned, uh, two walks, seven strikeouts. You know that game could have been lost in the first inning tonight. The Phillies have gotten into this annoying habit uh, over the last couple games here. I know they've they've won three out of four to open the season at home, but uh, they fell behind Saturday night. Uh, though they did score the last twenty in that one, they fell behind three nothing yesterday. Got down one nothing tonight, and uh, it looked like this thing was going to get out of hand quick. But uh, credit the lively, you know. He kind of he worked his way out of that. Got a jam job, bases loaded, nobody out, and then uh, strike out that in the inning. And th- this game could have 
totally gotten away from the Phillies in inning one. So credit to Lively there. I mean, he, he almost gave them six. Uh, it still hasn't happened yet for a Phillies starter, but yeah. uh, uh, Gabe Kapler rolled with him in the sixth inning. Uh, I, I actually kind of questioned the call. I know that he's been going to the bullpen a lot lately, um, and, and I know he desperately needs length out of his starters. I thought it was a little bit peculiar, especially, especially after he put the first two men on in the sixth inning tonight. Uh, Reds ended up tying the game. Uh, Hamilton hit the, the comebacker to him off his bare hand, and, and he obviously beat that out, and, and Reds tied the game at five. But, um, you know, an okay start for him. I think that that's what you're going to get from a guy like uh, Ben Lively. I think that that's, that's sort of what he is, you know. So he competed, kept the Phillies in the game, and, uh, you know, they, they pulled, out a, pulled out a game that they should have won at home against a bad team. And the, the one takeaway that I have, and my immediate takeaway, is that as bad as this has all seemed, I mean, this, this feels like a nightmare start, right? We're nine games into this thing, and it just almost feels like everything that, that could go wrong has gone wrong for this this team but they're four and five and they send their best pitcher to the mound tomorrow and they could be 500 after 10 games and considering how bad this has been and all the Gabe Kapler nonsense and all the other storylines and leaks coming from national reporters about him being on the hot seat which we'll get to later five and five I'll, I'll take that yeah I mean I you, you can't you can't complain too much I mean you they're winning the games that they should be winning. I mean, uh, yeah, you're a little disappointed about losing to Flor- uh, the Marlins yesterday, uh, or Sunday, rather, um, for whenever people are listening to this. <laughs> but at the same time, um, you can't win. You can't expect them to go 19-0 and against the Marlins either, right? So they're, they're going to lose one or two along the way. And if that's one of the two or three that they might lose to the Marlins this season, you know, you, you can't ultimately complain about that. But looking back at tonight, I mean, the one thing about I thought about Lively, Bob, is I felt like he had pretty good command of the fastball. I mean, he was locating it pretty well. It was his secondary pitches that he could not f- find. And that I think the Reds eventually, you know, realized that he couldn't control that curveball, couldn't get that over, throwing a lot of pitches in the dirt, that they were basically just sitting dead red after a while. And then even even though he had some decent location with the fastball, he just you couldn't you can't go in be in a game and just rely on one pitch for five innings and expect it to be a, a good outing. Yeah, I mean, especially when you consider what that fastball is I mean he's not going to overpower you I mean it's not a he's not a guy that's like here it is if you can if you can hit it if you can get a piece of it you can name it you know what I mean right um you know I just look at this and I will tell you and I know that you and I have talked off air about uh, about this team and about Gabe Kapler's use of the bullpen and and maybe going to it a bit too soon but for the life of me I I really don't understand if Ben Lively of all pitchers he goes 100 pitches tonight. He goes into the sixth inning, and these were not stress-free innings. You talk about stress-free innings and, and kind of having a feel for the flow of the game. And before the show started, you kind of said to me, I don't have a problem w- with Ben Lively you know, coming out for the sixth because they haven't gotten that depth from their, from their starters or that length from their starters. I didn't understand it. Uh, you know, he, he kind of was sporadic tonight. He went into these, these lulls, you know, where – a lot of base runners and then he would come out and he would kind of get it back together and start mowing through the lineup and two three four batters and then he would get back into trouble again and it just kind of felt like that he was walking a tightrope the entire night and I was very surprised to see him out there in the sixth inning um 
I'm not a big Ben Lively guy. I think that he's organizational depth or a long man out of the bullpen. I don't think that he's a, a competent four or five starter on a major league team. Uh, that that's kind of where I'm at with him. Uh, I don't know where where you lie on this, but. I just thought it was a very strange situation for him to be the guy in that particular situation that you decided to, you know, to draw out tonight. Um, I don't disagree with you on what Ben Lively is. Um, and I don't know if this leads us into conversation about Kapler, if we want to still hold off on that yet. But in this instance, this the reason I'm going to say I'm okay with it and actually thought that he did the right thing for once uh, in in this situation, is because if you look back over the last couple of games, all right. So you have the twenty to one game Saturday, and you know Velasquez couldn't give you any length because it's Vince Velasquez and he just can never give you any length. So you got to go to the bullpen there. You use a use a couple guys, but you get three innings out of Jake Thompson. All right, fair enough. Now you knew going into Sunday that Arietta was going to be on a pitch count. 75 pitches, you kind of hope he gets through five innings. Turned out he only could get through four. But then Kapler decided decided Sunday to start matching up just to go after. I mean, we, he's turned Justin Bohr into Barry Bonds. And you gotta, <laughs> we got to get that Hobie yeah. Milner out there who's now had six appearances and has gotten four outs yeah. um, in six appearances, matching him up against a lefty because he's lights out against them. Uh, we got to get Adam Morgan out there against a lefty. And, like, there were other situations. I sit there and say, Justin Boer's batting, what, 130, whatever it is that he's hitting. You mean to tell me Luis Garcia or Edebry Ramos in those instances can't pitch to Justin Boer? I mean, those guys are, are got more power behind their pitches than Hobie Milner does. So, But anyway, that said, he ended up using seven pitchers on Sunday. So without an off day between the two series – and knowing that you got to go, all right, you got three coming up here with the with the Reds, and 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 then it's like, okay, well, geez, I, I'm going to be using up a lot of bullpen pieces here several days in a row. For once, I'm actually kind of glad that he said, yeah, let me try and squeeze another inning out of a, out of a starting pitcher, even if it wasn't the greatest outing. Yeah, it's kind of curious that it was Ben Lively and not a guy like Nola or not a guy like Arietta or or even Pavetta the way he pitched uh, on opening day, but. At least, to me, that's progression, managerial progression. You know what I'm saying? Like, he realizes maybe I need to... Looking to, ahead a little bit more than... Yeah, really just, I need yeah. to look ahead and not just say, oh, I'm going to burn up my bullpen yet again today. The thing that's kind of interesting to me now is that we're we're almost 10 games into this thing and you still can't make any definitive conclusions. And I, I feel like I always have to put these qualifiers ahead. I can't wait till we just get to July when we can say this guy is bad or he is playing poorly, you know, where we don't have to right. just say, well, you know, it's early. It's only April. But uh, it's it's interesting to me how how much he's relied upon the bullpen this early in the season. And, and the thing is, the bullpen just isn't very good good uh when you consider the injuries that they've sustained uh, it's it's weird to me that he's like I gotta get Hobie Milner into the game or I I gotta get Adam Morgan into the game uh I have to get Luis Garcia into the game uh, it, it's it's interesting now tonight they did a good job three and a third scoreless uh backing up lively they they kind of walked a tightrope Yaxel Rios uh, pitched out of a jam I guess that was in the what the seventh inning I believe he right. got out of a bases loaded jam and they did a nice job tonight but they've been very very inconsistent they they killed him yesterday 
yesterday. Uh, it was the eighth inning. Uh, I believe the Marlins scored three runs to take the lead there. Uh, and that was a tandem job between Garcia and Morgan. Just simply didn't get the job done. And we're nine games into this thing, and there's really three games. And you can either pin them on Kapler or you can pin them on the bullpen. But it's it's been a bumpy start for those guys. And so... At some point, you do need to get length out of your starters. I thought it was kind of weird that it started with with Lively tonight. I'll tell you that tomorrow, Aaron Nolan needs to take the ball and he needs to last into the seventh inning. It's got to happen. Um, you know, he needs to give these guys a breather, and he almost has to take the decision out of Kapler's hands. You know, that's the way that I kind of look at this. And I think that we probably don't need to talk too much more about the a six five win in the ninth game of the season against the Reds. It was a decent win tonight. It was a nice little bounce back win after a disappointing letdown loss against the, the Marlins yesterday. But I think that the, the dominant story here, and it, it's going to continue to be the dominant story, let's face it, no matter what happens with this team this season, whether they get hot as the spring rolls on into the summer or they completely flatline and it turns into a total disaster, the story is Gabe Kapler. And I have been trying like hell. Like I, I came out those first couple games and I just crucified this guy. I was like, no, this is absolutely terrible. I'm, I'm second-guessing, criticizing every single thing he does when I'm writing for the website. And now I'm watching everybody else pile on it. I'm almost like going the other way now where I'm like, pump the brakes, you know? Like, let's let's take it easy on Gabe. They're four and five. It's not all bad. But, I mean, what are you seeing here? You know, like, let's talk a little bit about Gabe Kapler because I know that you have a lot to say, and I don't think too much of it is is glowing. <laughs> That's a great word <laughs> from, to use there, Bob. From what I, from what I gather here, yes. <laughs> no, it's not glowing. It, it's not and the thing of it is, is that as 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 and we'll, I'll get into specifics in just a second. But as 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 much as I've been frustrated with the moves that he's made over the first nine games of this season, I'm still willing to give him a chance. I'm still willing to say yeah, he'll figure it out, right? I mean, he played the game at the highest level. He has to be able to to know. You know, you know, situ- I mean, there are things where you can sit there and say, OK, you know what? Analytics in this spot is not a bad thing. Right. I mean, we've talked about some of the things like this. Like one of the things he did in, in spring training hasn't done it yet in the regular season. But, you know, you and I talked about it. Yeah. You know what? If you if a guy's hitting 80 percent of his balls to left field and you want to move a better defender to left field and put the left field guy in right field just for that batter. Yeah, that's kind of that makes sense. That's kind of smart. Right. I mean, that's that's using you know, information to your advantage. But when you're talking about, you know, taking out a, a, a pitcher on opening day like Aaron Nolo, the way he was going, in favor of Hobie Milner versus Freddie Freeman, there is no numbers that are going to tell you that that's the right thing. I don't care how you look at it. It's just not right. Yeah, I think he said that he relied upon, what, the, the third time through the order, right? Right. That was his thing. And I don't buy it. I, I'm sorry. I don't buy the third time through the order thing. He had only thrown 68 pitches. If you've thrown 95 pitches and it's the third time through the order and you want to talk about about it okay we can not at 68 but uh, i don't want to get into the stuff that we already discussed <laughs> i was just going to reel you in there yeah let, let me let me ask you this okay so the last time that we recorded was the last tuesday morning it was prior to the met series correct um where what have you seen in the last week that that irked you and i guess let's just go back to the met series uh, i don't think we need to take too much time on yeah. each of these things but you know so in the last week what have you seen has your opinion changed uh, at all i think we're going to play a game bob we're going to play a game i'm going to i'm going to list a scenario and that happened, and you tell me how you would have handled it, okay? Because I want because I, I think by the end, 
I might have you kind of slightly on board with me. Maybe uh, not completely, okay, yeah. but slightly on board. All right? I'm in for this, yeah. All right, sure. first first one is uh, Nick Williams playing in shallow right field against Ahmed Rosario um, because it says, oh, his spray chart says that he that's where he hits the ball, and then he hits a triple over your head, and you lose the game because of it. All right, so if I'm coaching a high school team, let's say, I always want to pull my outfielders in and say, beat me over my head. You know, don't dink and dunk me to death. I want you to prove that you can knock the ball over my head. However, uh, this is not this is not high school baseball. This is not little league. So um, I think that the the tweet that emerged after that game was that Nick Williams was pay, playing what two hundred and forty five feet deep. He was fifty two feet yeah. closer than the average right fielder. Yeah. Uh, my my problem with that is uh, not even so much that he's shallow, but. It's the first pitch. We're not talking about an 0-2 pitch or a 1-2 pitch where it's a defensive situation. Um, it's the first pitch of the bat. He's going to try to be aggressive. He's going to try to drive the ball. They throw a low and away slider to him, too. If you go back and look at the pitch selection, I mean, your, your fielders and the way that you position your fielders, you can look at, at data, you can look at trends and, and where they tend to hit the baseball, but it also has to align with your pitch selection and your mm-hmm. pitch location. And I thought it was kind of weird that they went low and away to him. It's almost like they invited him to hit the ball to right field. Like they were specifically looking for that. And he just beat Williams. I mean, and he beat him pretty badly. And had he been playing at 297 feet, like the average right fielder at City Field in 2017, uh, he runs that ball down with ease, right? And, um, and I'll, t- I'll say one other thing. You want to cheat in uh, because the numbers say to cheat in. Uh, okay. I- I'm actually okay with the concept. But do you need to come in that far? So if the average right fielder is at 297 and you got your guy coming in at 245, what if you're half the, halfway between the two? Does sure. he catch that ball? Probably. I mean, with his right. speed, yeah. Right. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think that if you have a, a guy who's in the know who your outfielder is and say, you know what, he can make up that ground. All right, we want to cheat in a little bit because he tends to dink and dunk a little bit. Okay, but at least let's leave him in a position where if the ball is hit over his head, he can go back and get it. That ball didn't even land on the warning track. It landed on the grass in front of the warning track. That's terrible. That's a lazy fly ball. I, you know, let me just ask you this. Let me just ask you this. So, to what extent is this bad luck, right? And I, oh, I don't want to excuse. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to excuse him. I mean, listen, I'm with you. I, I thought it was absurd when the ball came off the bat. I said, okay, they're out of the inning here, right? And and then I go, what? What the hell was that? So I'm with you. I'm not trying to tell you that I'm in agreement that playing at 247 feet is is the right thing to do in that particular situation, especially that early in the count, but. I mean, if, if the numbers, if you have this aggregation of data that you're collecting and you say, okay, we know where he tends to hit the baseball, we know where he tends to hit the ball in certain counts, in certain situations, and we feel pretty comfortable about this or with this information, it hasn't really worked for him thus far. I mean, is there a law of averages to this where if it bears out over 162 games, which I think, I assume, is, is what he believes – that over time this is going to even itself out and, and really sway in his favor where he's he's more often right than he's wrong, is he just running into bad luck? And I, I heard your initial dismissal of it, but, I mean, let's talk about it. Why not? Okay, it, it, I can sit there and say, okay, if it happens once, yeah, that's bad luck. You know, okay, you played the numbers and it didn't work in your favor. Okay, fine. But when it's consistently happening, 
And we'll get to a few more situations. When it's consistently happening where you just say, oh, well, that's bad luck. Oh, well, that's bad luck. Oh, well, that's bad luck. Is it? Or is it that the conventional way would have been better? <laughs> I mean, that's the question. So it's, it's, it's the chicken or the egg conversation. And I, I, tend to, I tend to side with convention because it's 100 years, 150 years of convention and not just something that says, oh, you know, we have, we have data on, on this situation that, you know, in late in games and, and uh, he's swinging early at a county, he's going to hit a ball uh, low and away, he's going to hit a little blue bleeder to, you know, shallow right, right field and we're going to have a guy there. No, I, it's too much. It's just too how, much. How did you feel about Pete McCannon? I'm not setting you up here. No, <laughs> I just, I just, I, Pete was a guy who, I mean, I was just, he was just a guy to me. Like, I mean, I felt like he right. was, he was a manager who, you know, he, he did, did well right after Sandberg, but I mean, geez, you and I could have done well right after Sandberg. Right. Yeah. So I think that that kind of was why people kind of liked Pete right away. And he was, he, he was gregarious and he was easy to talk to and he was honest and you know, he wasn't giving you any kind of, you know, speech that you know that in everything and so i guess that's why kind of why he was like your it was like your buddy that you hung out with but i didn't know if that made him any better of a manager than anyone else i just thought he was kind of just a guy there right and so i asked that just because kapler makes for good conversation good debate we can sit here and go back and forth about these things that that he's done thus far my question is this if pete mccann was the manager of the phillies right now what's their record are they are they four and five? Are they five and four? Is there a difference here? Uh, I mean, you're right. I mean, it might. I mean, I don't know. I I'd probably not much different. I mean, the maybe bullpen's they, still bad, right? I mean, yeah. the, the Aaron Altair is he is he not hitting oh seventy three? Well, you know? I, mean, I mean, well, let's talk about uh, that's going to. I'm going to bring up my number two on my list, and we can talk about Aaron Altair a little bit if you want. I, I think that, and this is something that I know we disagree on, but I'll. I think that there's there's there, the reason. I'll give you my reasons why I think it. it it has it bears some fruit. He has not been able to settle on a number three hitter at yet, and until the last couple of games, it looks like Herrera because Herrera's hitting is finally in that spot and maybe for a, a little while. But he he's had Williams there, Herrera there, Altair there, Kingry there. It's the number three spot in your lineup. It's the third most frequent batter who's going to who's going to get at bats in your game you you want to argue to say that your best hitter should hit two or whatever the case might be. okay fine whatever but the fact of the matter is is the number three hitter is going to see the third most plate appearances so why are we continually rotating someone through there and not getting someone in there who you're going to be comfortable with batting 650 times a year in a spot like that Right, so Herrera hitting the three-hole tonight. And so by my calculation, Williams has hit two times in the three-hole, Herrera four times, Altair once, Kingery twice. So you have four different hitters that have done it in nine games, uh, and it's kind of been an even distribution there. Herrera you know, is, is starting to pull away a little bit in more recent games, and so maybe that will be the trend that develops here moving forward. But, yeah, um, you know, we had talked about this off-air a little bit, and uh, you, you believe in lineup continuity and guys kind of – knowing what their role is and, and getting into a certain rhythm and, and understanding their place in the order because, you know, let's face it, different guys in, in different places in the order are asked to do different jobs and, and who you're hitting in front of and behind kind of dictates the pitches that you'll see. And, and I do understand that. But to what extent does this just come down to, okay, you're facing a pitcher on a certain night, 
the numbers dictate that you have a beneficial matchup or a, you know an advantageous matchup against that pitcher, and therefore one night you might hit second, the next night you may hit seventh, the, the night after that you might hit third. I mean, these guys, and, and I think that the devil's advocate take uh, to, to what you're saying is these guys are professional baseball players. You get in the box and a 94-mile-an-hour cutter is a 94-mile-an-hour cutter no matter how you slice it. So, you know, why – why not? You know, if, if if this is predicated upon matchups and, and really trying to find the advantage in these matchups, why not juggle them around, especially early in the year? Let someone emerge and do it. Yeah, you're not making a, a terrible point there. I, I think that it's, it's certainly valid. Um, but the point that I try to make in that instance is this, is that you know, as a hitter, okay, when you, and it's no secret if you look at who's hitting in this lineup and who isn't, the guys who, with the exception of maybe Carlos Santana, but he's starting to come around. Well, he really hit some balls hard today. Yeah, um, he ran into some. You want to go yeah. back to bad luck, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's but he's hitting the ball hard. Uh, but maybe with him being the only exception, the guys who are finding the most success are guys who are hitting in the same spot every game. And why? Because not because oh they are just it, they're creatures of habit and they're used to that and blah blah blah. I mean that's a mental thing and I think that a, a, a professional should be able to get past that, like you're saying. But I think that when you get into a certain situation and you know you're going to come up to uh, to the plate in very similar situations more often than not, and you're going to see how people are pitching you in those situations more often than not. You're going to kind of get a better feel if you're doing your homework on the kinds of pitches you're going to get in certain spots, and it makes you more locked in on what's coming to you. And, and I think that if you have that continuity, for the most part, I get it, lineups have to change, but if you're getting that continuity for the most part, where it's the same guys most of the time, right in front of you, right behind you, whatever the case might be, then you, you know, you, you're you going to know that, hey, Cesar Hernandez is getting on base 40% of the time, and when he's on base 40% of the time, that means these are the kind of pitches that Carlos Santana is going to get, right? And so now he knows what he's going to be facing, and he knows what his job is in this situation. Okay, do I need to move the runner? Do I, is he going to be stealing? Like you know so much more when you're there regularly. And if you're bouncing around, um, and especially, and I'll tell you another thing that bouncing around is what they're doing with, with Kingery, making him play five different positions for a rookie – I really wish that he was would be in a spot where he could just play in a regular spot and just play and bat in a regular spot and just bat. And then once he gets comfortable, then you can start to you know move him a little bit. I, this, this early in the season, I when I look at this, I, I agree with you, and I just think that over time this is going to play itself out where these guys establish themselves where you know – People emerge. The more productive players will slot into to the three spot and you know into the top of the order spots. The guys that you obviously want up at the plate the most will be the guys that end up being at the plate the most. And I just feel like over 162 games that that eventually will play itself out. And I don't see necessarily. I mean, I I, I think that you and I are both kind of traditionalists in a lot of ways, and I I agree with what you're saying in theory. I just look at it and I go, okay, it's nine games in. Is this really that big of a deal yet? I feel like you're still trying to learn. You're still trying to assess what you have. You obviously have this this surplus of infielders, and and really, 
depending upon how you feel about Nick Williams, I mean, I know he hasn't played a ton, but you, you have a surplus in the outfield as well right now. And so you have all these additional parts. And, and to me, it's almost like, hey, you know, earn your spot. And I almost feel like that there's this, I don't know, a, a sense of competition within the clubhouse. And it's not just competing against the opponent. It's, hey, guys, show me what you got. You know, who wants to be the, you know, who wants to be the guy in the three spot? Who wants to to get the majority of starts in right field, you have to go out and earn it. And, you know, certainly Reese Hoskins has done that thus far, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But I think that there was a part of Gabe Kapler that says, I don't really know what Aaron Altair is. I don't really know what Nick Williams is. I don't really know what Odubel Herrera is. I think that these are guys that have been productive on, on crappy teams the last couple of years, and, and we'll see what happens now that there's some expectations and some legitimate competition out there. And, and do you think that there might be anything to the fact that he's just kind of letting it play itself out at this point? Maybe, but I'll say this. If you look at every spot in the lineup, the number three hole is hitting 143 this season, which is worst on the team. Yeah. Aside, not counting pitchers, 143, and their on base percentage is 263. <laughs> I mean, that's. I mean, it's nine games. I know, but that's 41 plate appearances. It's not. It's it's small sample size, but it's also not really that small. You know what I'm saying? No, I know. Exactly I mean, that's it, 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 and and it's it's arguably. I mean, you can argue arguably one of the two, three most important positions in the lineup. So why are we fooling around with it? You know so what I'm who, saying? who's the guy there then? I, I think ultimately, you want my honest opinion, it should be Reese Hoskins. Okay. It, the way, I mean, the way he controls a strike zone uh, and the way he hits, I mean, I, I think it's, there's a, a very real possibility that his home run total is not as high as people think it's going to be, but that he crushes doubles this year. I, I honestly think he's going to be a guy who could push – 50 doubles, 52 doubles, 53 doubles, and maybe 30 home runs, 32 home runs. I, I just think that he's going to be that kind of guy because of how selective he is and, and being able to drive the ball in certain, you know, and he's hitting, hitting the ball all over the place. All right. Well, if we're looking for optimization of the lineup, then who's protecting him? Mike, Mike Alfranco? who's on pace for 216 <laughs> RBIs, I tweeted tonight. Yeah, off to a hot start, Mike Ellis. Well, yeah, I mean, so. for now, I mean, yeah. you don't really have um, – I mean, if it, okay, if you want to say you don't really have a three-hitter, then maybe you don't really have a four-hitter. But I'd rather not have a four-hitter than not have a three-hitter because the three-hitter is going to bat more than a four-hitter. Just, just the way it, it's, it's just the way it is. So, I mean, I, to me, the three-hole is, is a very important – spot in your lineup and to just dismiss it as something we can just play around with until we find somebody who can do it, it to, I don't know maybe maybe Carlos Santana shouldn't be hitting too maybe maybe you should have the way Herrera gets on base maybe Herrera should be you know two and then you can put actually put Santana behind Hoskins then yeah, you're going to pitch then you're going to pitch around Reese Hoskins when you got a guy behind him who can take as many pitches as Santana takes and gets on base like Santana gets on base. You see what I'm saying? I think then you're, you're really starting to play with it a little bit better. You've got two guys who can get on base in front of guys who can drive in runs. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I would be hitting Hernandez first. Um, I actually think I would hit Kingery second. Um, I'm okay with that. And, well, and I like Carrera in the three spot. I'm okay with that, and I don't mind Hoskins four, Franco five. Uh, I wouldn't mind actually hitting Santana further down in the order. I know he's a little bit more of a, a high on-base percentage guy, and I, I guess you want to stack those guys against you know, your power, but I, I don't know. I, if, if it were me, I, like, to, to me, Kingery's hitting up you know, two. I think the Kingery's the two. Um, maybe that's asking a lot out of a rookie you know, in his first season. Yeah. Uh, but 
Uh, one thing, one thing I don't want to get well, too far away from that, and they bat him third. Yeah, yeah, they've done that. So I mean, I guess, I guess you yeah. can't use that excuse. I mean, listen, if we're still doing that in in June, July, if we're still having this conversation, and you say, well, Herrera's had twenty three starts in the three hole, and Altair's had twenty one, and Kingery's had seventeen, yeah, then I think that there's something to be said for that. For right now, first couple okay. of weeks of the season, I'm okay with the lineup juggle, probably a little a little bit more than you are, but I do understand continuity, and I think that this is something they're going to have to figure out. Because I do think, and this has been my concern, and I talked about this in the first two shows, is how the clubhouse is going to respond to him. And, and there were some issues with that this week, which I, I guess let's hold off on that for a, a couple more minutes. I want to let you air finish your my grievances. List. Yeah, I finish want you to list. finish your list of right. grievances on well, Kapler before move, we move forward. Moving on, and I can kind of combine these, these next two together. Um, but uh, something you've already brought up about the pitcher hitting eighth, it actually cost him twice in the home opener. Because they intentionally walked Jorge Alfaro two times. The second time made it first and third with two outs, and they brought Nick Pavetta, bringing Nick Pavetta to the plate. Now, he could have pinch hit for Pavetta there because it was a spot where you you might want to try and drive in a run, and he didn't. He kept Pavetta in, in, which is uh, all right. I, I don't know if I would have. He had thrown close, like 88 pitches or something along those lines at that point. And then he only he let him face, what, two batters and then took him out of the game anyway, the very next inning. And that's not the first time he's done that, where he's let a pitcher bat and then taken him out at the beginning of the next inning. If you're really basing it on those kinds of things, why make him bat? So I'm, I'm going to sound... I'm going to sound very uh, – I'm going to sound like an idiot here, but I'm just going to go for it. Uh, go there has been math done over time that, that proves that in, in some cases, not all cases, that there is a very slight advantage to hitting the pitcher eighth. Um, it's, it's almost inconsequential in a lot of cases. I just hate it. Uh, more often than not, it, it just seems like the type of thing where you go, man, it would be really nice to have a position player up right now. And, and I can't help but watch a game and feel like that more often than not. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, I feel like that that comes up more than the, well, you, you see that strategy really paid off here. And uh, so I actually wanted to talk a little bit uh, about this and, and kind of fully understand the evolution of the the pitcher hitting in the eight spot and one of the things that I read it came from an article uh, on Grantland uh, which no longer exists so it's a little bit outdated it ran in 2015 and it talked about how Tony La Russa started implementing this idea when Mark McGuire was at his peak and he was hitting a lot in the three hole at the time and the idea obviously was to stack as many quality hitters ahead of McGuire as possible for subsequent at bats after you know his first plate appearance and so it's very much tied to the type of personnel that you have. And so the benefit of kind of moving that pitcher up into the eight spot varies by team. And one of the quotes that I found really interesting from that article was from somebody that runs a front office, uh, an AL exec, and he says, we've tried it in the past. Or I'm sorry, an NL exec. We've tried it in the past, and we just didn't figure we had the right bats in the lineup to make it work. Uh, an elite number three hitter or somebody who could hit number nine that could serve as a second leadoff hitter is essential if you were going to do this. So if the premise is that you need to have an elite number three hitter when you're batting the pitcher eighth, 
do the Phillies have an elite number three hitter? Well, doesn't that just circle back to what we talked about, which is no. Uh, And they don't even know who the hell the three hitter is. So with that said, it it just, it seems like a bizarre strategy to me. And this is one I fully agree with you. Uh, I don't get it. It, It's one of these things that almost seems like I want to be the smartest guy in the room. Let's be savvy for the sake of being savvy, progressive for being, you know, for the sake of being progressive. That's what this strikes me as. And you also don't have a second leadoff hitter in the nine hole because well, you got JP Crawford, who we're going to get into that because, <laughs> boy, what a what a mess he is right now. And, yeah, I and, wrote a little bit about him today, and I yeah. thought it was brilliant. I thought that your breakdown of it was was great because it it, it really goes. There's something really wrong with with his approach at the plate. Well, but we'll get to that. I, I, I'm not done with with Kapler. Um, <laughs> We had two infield shifts. We're at the run- wait, wait, wait. We're at the thirty-six mark, uh, thirty-six yeah. minute mark and yeah. counting, and we're not done with Kapler. We're not done right, with Kapler. This is going to be like a weekly thing. Continue um, on. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Like this, I, I've never been this. Um, this guy roasting a manager after nine yeah, games. Yeah. Not only that, I've never been. I've never put a manager under this much scrutiny. Because I know what I know the challenges. I mean, you've got to think on your feet. You got to come up with the, you know, make these decisions. And a lot of times, you just you know whatever you're going off a of gut feel, whatever. I get it. And so sometimes you're going to make a mistake. But when you have a whole slew of them piling up, game after game after game, I'm sitting here and I'm actually taking notes in every game of, of the of the things that the manager's doing that I wouldn't do, um, and it's crazy. But so he, in, he has two infield shifts with runners on first. And it cost him a double play two times, once against the Mets and then once again last uh, Sunday against the Marlins. And it burned him both times. And yeah. both times would have got him out of the inning, didn't happen. And he says, oh, well, they hit the ball to the one spot you can't turn a double play. Well, but if you had the players in the natural position with a runner on first, then you turn a double play. Look, if you want to shift when there's nobody on base, I'm, I get it. I understand it, and it makes sense. Go ahead. Go shift to your heart's content. Um, even though I still think the hitters will eventually figure it out and go the other way, until they do play the numbers with nobody on base, fine. Um, but if you got a runner on first, you you can't. I mean, and then you saw it tonight again tonight. I didn't even put this on my list, but tonight you had you had Jorge Alfaro trying to throw out Billy Hatcher stealing second base, and you had Mike Alfranco and Scott Kingery tripping over each other at second base trying to catch a ball that rolled through, went right into center field, because this sh- they're shifting again. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Nothing has worked yet with this shift with a runner on base. Why are we doing it? Uh, I'm just filing it away right now. I'm, I'm going to be that guy. I'm, I'm a voice of reason, <laughs> Anthony. I don't know what to tell you, man. Like I just I like to sit back and collect a larger sample size. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm having a hard time with this because now that I'm writing in a, a public forum and, and people are reading it, I don't want to go off the rails. And and old me, uh, you know, 24, 25 year old me would say, "What the hell is this? <laughs> they're they're making these moves. He, this guy's sabotaging these games. He's a moron. He doesn't know anything. This stuff doesn't work. Just play the goddamn guy straight up and, and let's be done with it." Um, I'm trying really hard. I don't really understand the shift, uh, you know, in these situations. I agree if there's nobody on base and, and you know where the guy's going and you know what his tendencies are, go ahead, go for it, knock yourself out. But uh, I, I am in full agreement with you here. I just, I'm kind of falling back uh, on the, the measured side of this by saying, let's see more. You know, I, I'm waiting for that critical, that critical spot where there's first and second in the, 
seventh, eighth inning, and they're protecting a one-run lead, and the ball smashed, and you go, oh, no, and it's it's smeared by Hernandez in shallow center field. You know, I'm waiting for that moment. It hasn't happened yet, but uh, we'll see. I, I just want to see a little bit more before I destroy him on it, but I okay. totally get it because uh, okay. I'm, I'm right there with you, honestly. Uh, I'm just trying to sound like a reasonable person here. Yeah, you're doing a great job. Yeah, Number yeah. six. I'm fighting it. <laughs> Twice. He's called for now, I, I, and I texted you actually during opening day, talking. It was it was hysterical because I was typing the text, and then this boneheaded thing happened. I'm sitting there saying, I really appreciate how aggressive he is on the bases with this team today, and literally as I'm typing it, Cesar Hernandez is getting thrown out trying to steal third base. Yeah, and then Reese Hoskins gets thrown out uh, Sunday against the Marlins trying to steal third base with no outs. Mind you, I mean that, that the, at least right the Hernandez, the inning, yeah. at least the Hernandez one was with one out, and you're like, okay, trying to get over for the sack fly or whatever. Um, but the, the Hoskins one, you got nobody out, guy on second base, and you know, like, why are you stealing third with a guy who's not a base stealer, no less? What what are we doing here? You that, you should you got a guy in scoring position. Why are we st- trying to steal bags at that point? I believe they're second in baseball in stolen bases right now. Is, it, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, that I mean, is correct. So he did say that they're going to be aggressive, uh, that he felt that oftentimes that they were going to take gambles that maybe they would not or a lot of teams certainly would not usually try. I agree. Hoskins yesterday I thought was a, an egregious mistake. Um, again, I, you know, this is where you kind of – if you look at it conventionally, trying to steal third base with a guy that's not a, a base runner, I think he was just trying to really time it up yesterday. I think, I think he thought he had something there and that that, that risk was worth it. Uh, obviously, it wasn't random out of the inning, and I think probably directly resulted in them losing that game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just it's one of these things, and I think that this is the key question, and it sounds like such a cop-out because, you know, you, you get on here and you, you want to come out strong and you want to have this opinion and say, this is what I think I am right and this is where I'm going to go with it, but we're in such unchartered territory here. This is this is new to us, and it's it's... I don't want to say I need to see more, but I wonder what they're looking at when they say, like, we're going to take these outrageous gambles that that don't seemingly make much sense logically, but we do think that over time, when you compile this day in, day out, that it's going to provide an advantage to us. Now, I mean, I like the fact that they're running more. I like teams that are aggressive on the base paths, but... Yeah, do I need Reese Hoskins swiping third base with nobody out? No, I, I never need that. To, right, you know, I mean, so. I, I, think it goes too, I think it goes too far. Right? Is that fair to say? I mean, again, the aggressiveness to a point is good, but don't do it to the point of to where you're you're hurting yourself. So we recorded the first show, and I said to you, "Here's my concern." And this was before the you know a pitch was ever thrown. My concern was that the Phillies were going to do things that were radical and different, just for the sake of doing things that were radical and different. And do you think to this point? Everything that you've seen now, we've been doing this for almost two weeks. Do you think that they are trying to do things their way just to say, we are smarter than you? I mean, how much of this is we are going to do things in an unconventional manner, and so not only are we going to win, we're going to win our way, and we are going to change the way the game is played, and we are going to get so much credit for this, and 
do you think that there's any of that to this? When they when they laid out this philosophy, when they said, we're going to run a ton this year, we're going to do these crazy shifts. I mean, which other teams, by the way, like the Astros, who have gotten off to a great start, have been doing all sorts of insane stuff. So, I mean, it's not like the Phillies are the only team to do this. And, and you know, that needs to be said, obviously. I think some people that, that follow the game probably realize that. But you just, you just get the sense, though, watching Kapler, he just says, I'm, I'm going to do this my way and yeah. and that some of that has gotten in the way of of maybe sanity you know yeah no i agree i mean look they've they've attempted 13 steals they've converted on nine and got caught four times um that's 69 percent, and it's a little low i mean you probably want your stolen base percentage to be between 75 and 80 right i mean i, I just saying on, on average is probably the best you know that, that's what you can hope for you want to make it eight out of ten times right right so if you're at 69 you're a little low and it's a small again small sample size our favorite thing to say um but i, th- I think that there are situations there where maybe if you don't try and steal third twice now all of a sudden you're nine for 11 and now it's like oh it looks really good right now it looks like that they're doing a good job because now you're over 80 percent stealing bases stealing second base all the time and I, look, I, there are going to be situations where you try and steal third. I get it. And maybe these two just happen to be two where they thought they had something and they just didn't, like you pointed out. And again, it's a small sample. But if it, I hope that this isn't becoming a, a recurring thing because if it is going to become a recurring thing, I mean, the other thing I, I will point out is the Marlins. We were talking about this. I, I went down the game with my two sons. Uh, opening day, and I was down there Sunday for the Ariadne game, so I was down there twice. Yeah, I went Saturday, so I guess I picked yeah, the winner you, there. Yeah. You went, yeah, right, exactly. Um, it, we kept pointing out how frequently the Marlins were throwing to second base to hold a runner. Which you almost never see. Which you never see. Yeah. Which you never see. And so that tells me that teams are already on to them about this, that they already know that this is a thing that he's going to do. So it's no longer even element of surprise kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that uh, no team is, you know, looking this up here, uh, the Pirates are the only team that has had a worse success rate uh, stealing bases so far. So, I mean, the Phillies have been ultra aggressive, but they've also been maybe a little bit reckless as well. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Moving on. Um, uh, we kind of briefly touched on this earlier when we were talking about the bullpen. Um, knowing you're going to be – limiting Arietta Sunday and, and with Thompson having thrown three innings a day before so he's not available so now your bullpen's reduced by one um, why the heck are you playing matchup with your bullpen in the fourth or in the fifth inning and then again in the seventh inning and then it's a tie game and you're still doing matchup with relievers what if that game goes to extra what if what if you don't have that eighth inning situation happen and this game leaks into extra innings I mean he was down to Naris and uh, Arano, right? I think that was uh, Rios. Arano got into the game. So he was down to Naris and Rios after the ninth inning. I mean, how, how, how long could you have gone? I think that what you're seeing here is a guy that is trying to win the game in front of him. Uh, I think that he... Let me give you this take. This is a good one. Uh, I actually think what you're seeing here is a guy that has a lot of pressure. He, I think he's felt the criticism a lot more than than he 
is letting on. And I think that he says, we have a chance to win this game. I'm going to do the things that I think I need to do to win this game. I think that he needs to try to quell the criticism. I think that he knows that people around the game, uh, it's not just, you know, the, the guy calling the radio station to complain about what he what he doesn't like. He knows that executives are talking about it. He knows that his own clubhouse is leaking information to reporters. I think that he feels a sense that he needs to win now. And I don't know that he's as... Uh, confident and secure as is as what he's letting on in his press conferences or in his interviews. Uh, how about that? And so I, I think like that, that I, I like that take. You know, and I think that it gets down to a subconscious level. And I don't want to play therapist here or anything like that. But I do think that this this kind of gets to a point where he does feel immense pressure. And I think that uh, when you look at the athletic and you see Ken Rosenthal writing about managers on the hot seat. I mean, tell me that he doesn't see that. Tell me that he hasn't been told about that. And so I think that there's just this sense. It's like a narrow focus. Like I must win the game in front of me tomorrow be damned. And and maybe that's why you saw Ben Lively throw a hundred pitches tonight because he said, screw tomorrow. Uh, These are the matchups that I think are going to get us a win today, which part of me respects that. But I mean, you can't, you can't manage a 162-game schedule like that either. No, right. You have to have some some vision ahead of you. I mean, a little bit. I mean, I I think that there are, it gets to a point in the season where you have to manage for today and worry about tomorrow later. But at this juncture, you still have to think about tomorrow because you have to get through several days in a row with with a bullpen and how you're going to do that when you're using them up time after time after time. Yeah, but and, since I mean, you, and obviously I'm speculating here, right? Like I, I don't of know course that you that's are. the case. You of know, course but, you are, but it's, a, but it's a smart speculation on you your part, Bob. you look at it and you see what they're doing, I mean, you, you kind of almost go like, well, what else is the thought process here, right? Because you're asking me a question like, well, what's he doing? And I mean, the answer to that is I have no idea what he's doing. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, there are certain things that I'm willing to be patient about. There are certain things that I'm willing to evaluate and, and like kind of let this see how it, it plays out. Uh, you know, let's collect more. Uh, uh, actually, can we get through, let's make a deal with each other let's see yeah. if we can get through the show next week without using the words data or sample size right but you know yeah. now that i've said that i'm now going to use that word let's see more let's see what's really going on here let's see how this works out over you know let's give it at least two months to, to see how this thing trends but right now to, to answer your question i have no idea i mean he clearly was not prepared had that game entered on 11th 12th 13th inning to, to manage that type of game i don't know if he played planned on you know using a starter uh maybe maybe he goes to lively if that thing gets deep I don't know maybe he says let's call up somebody and we'll have them spot start on Monday night I I really don't know what the thought process is there but yeah I mean he he kept his bullpen very short uh yesterday and in a way he might have almost lucked out the fact that the bullpen was ineffective in the eighth inning and they lost the game yeah uh I'm only going to bring up one more since we're dragging this out I'm not, I, I had a couple more on the list but I'm only going to bring up Stop one more it, he's already dead yeah. yeah I'm only going to bring up this last one because this one this one bothered me because this is what ultimately cost them ultimately really cost them the game um so you have your first and second and uh Morgan's pitching and uh, Andrew Knapp pass ball um and it goes to second and third with one out now Brian Anderson's at the plate. And Brian Anderson's no star player, but you know he filled in pretty well last year after uh, Martin Prado got hurt. Um, had a, a, a just an okay season, but at least an okay major league season as opposed to being just a minor league guy coming up and playing. Behind him in the lineup, you have Lewis Brinson, who has yet to yet to even make contact on a breaking ball. Uh, he has st- struck out thirty percent of the time this season, and 
I can guarantee you I haven't looked at every at-bat, but at least every one against the Phillies that he struck out, I think he struck out six times against the Phillies, was on a breaking ball slider yeah, curveball. Yeah, who I wanted in the uh, Hamels trade. That was the guy that I wanted yeah. back in that deal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he just Whoops. not not can't can't make contact with a breaking ball. So he would have been up next, and behind him was Braxton Lee, okay, who's who's a nobody. So you, so you have Anderson in this spot, one out, second and third. Why don't you put him on? You have two weak hitters behind him. Turns out the funny thing is, is and it, obviously you never know, situational pitching is different. It turns out that Brinson hit a weak grounder to second that would have been an easy double play ball. Um, but the fact of the matter is is that you're probably going to pitch to stri- pitch him to strike him out because he, he struck out so much already. And then you got two outs, bases loaded, and you're going after Braxton Stinkin' Lee. Isn't that a much better scenario than second and third against a guy like Brian Anderson? I, if you want me to give you the positive spin on that, you're at least asking questions that are a little bit more conventional now. You know, these are <laughs> <laughs> these are decisions that that a lot of managers might make. Uh, how's that? Is that good? Am I well, helping here? Well, I, you know, it was he was asked this question in the in the press in the post game press conference. I'd give Rob Motti from the Associated Press credit because everybody else was asking questions that had nothing to do with anything and and. Rob Motti said, can we talk about this for a second? And asked him. And his Kapler's answer was, we have all the confidence in the world in Mo, Adam Morgan. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. We thought about it, but we have all the confidence in the world in Mo. Oh, oh well, sorry. Then, okay. well, then, no, then, then, there you go. It right. then, yes. That's it. That's the of answer, course, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, how about this? Uh, so, so these are your uh, – this is your list of complaints. Um, yeah. Let's talk about how the clubhouse feels about it because to me this is the the prevailing storyline. This is the thing that I think at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what you say or what I say or what anyone else says, but I do think that, that clearly the way that his players feel about him and the way that they view the job that he's doing is going to be the, the key – the key thing uh, that that leads to his survival beyond this year, you know, I, I think that if, if the players at the end of the year say we really kind of like what he's doing, we think he's figured it out, we, we kind of trust him, we believe him uh, or believe in him, then then I think you might see year two of Gabe Kapler. But if they get to to the end of the summer and it's like what what just happened. And the Phillies decide, okay, let's reverse course and, and go a more conventional, go a more traditional route. I think it's going to be because the players bury him. And what we have seen uh, since we last talked was a little bit more of this, you know, what do you want to call it? Um, distaste, dissension from the clubhouse, I guess, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the anonymous report that leaked prior to the home opener on Thursday. Uh, John Heyman comes out, Fan Rag Sports, and says you know, that the Phillies will be okay once uh, once the manager gets out of the way, right? And there's uh, a Nick Williams report that that leaked right around the same time about him staying up, and we referenced this right at the top of the show about him staying up guilt free playing video games because Kapler texts him the lineup, and and he hasn't found himself in it very much so far this season. Uh, and a lot of people linked Nick Williams to that that anonymous report. Well. The more I think about it, the less sense that makes. And to me, I think the guy that delivered that quote to Heyman is Jake Arrieta. And I know I told you this prior to the show, um, yep. but when you, you kind of think about it, 
who's John Heyman talking to? He's a he's a veteran reporter. He's an established reporter. Do you think he's talking to to J.P. Crawford? Do you think he's talking to Jorge Alfaro or Andrew Knapp? You know, is that is that the type of quote one of those guys is going to deliver, or is it going to be a more veteran guy? And so, who does that leave? Carlos Santana, or maybe a guy like Jake Arrieta? And the reason why I connect the dots with Arrieta, the Heyman report, is because Heyman was out in front of everything related to Jake Arrieta throughout the course of the offseason. You know, his talks with the Cubs, him declining the Cubs' initial offer, uh, the fact that he was going to wait, that the Phillies were interested, uh, that the Phillies did the deal. Heyman was the one that broke it. And so there was a clear connection between Arietta and Heyman throughout the course of the offseason. And it would just, I don't really see any way that it wasn't Arietta. Uh, and I don't know if, if you have another possibility. And I know we're speculating here, but I think yeah, that you went out and signed a, a prize free agent stud top of the rotation arm. And I think that he assessed the situation a couple weeks in spring training in the first week of the season. And he told John Heyman, this guy needs to get the hell out of the way. And I think that's yeah. what happened. And I think that you're, I think that you're, assessment is 100% correct. If, if I was to guess, if I was to put money on it and, and someone said, okay, we'll tell you for real, but you just got, you got to bet on somebody, I would bet on Arietta as well. I mean, but I, I mean, if I had to make a list of the other players, it's, you know, you mentioned Santana, maybe Pat Neshek, maybe Tommy Hunter. That's might be it. I mean, I can't think of anybody else. I mean, really that comes to mind that would fit that bill, right? All right, I mean, so I, I have a question for you, Ready? Yeah. How many players are on the active roster? 25. Okay. Odubel Herrera isn't in the opening day lineup. Is he happy about it? Nope. Nope, and he told the press that he wasn't happy about it. Aaron Nola gets removed in the sixth inning of a game that he's cruising on opening day. Was he happy about it? Nope. Nope, and did he tell the press about it? Yes, he did. Yep. Obi Milner got left out to dry that Saturday night in Atlanta. Didn't even get a chance to warm up. Did he defend his manager after the game? Nope. Nope. Nick Williams says, uh, you know, I don't understand why I'm not playing. Maybe the computers did it or something. That doesn't exactly sound like a ringing endorsement of the manager, no? So nope. uh, does he sound thrilled? Nope. That's four. And then you want to attach an anonymous report, which may or may not have been Arietta, whatever. But at the very least, it's another player. That's five. That means that one-fifth of your roster in the first, even if you want to, I know this happened at the end of last week, but if you want to extend it outward to tonight, one one-fifth of your roster in the first nine games of the season is in some way, shape, or form criticized the manager through the media. Uh, I don't know that I can ever recall that being the case with even a guy like Ryan Sandberg, who by all accounts most of the clubhouse did disliked. Right. No, I agree. And, and, and that's, that's a concern. That's a major concern. And I'll give you a sixth guy, and this one wasn't even – Kapler wasn't even wrong about. Kapler made the right call at this point. When he took Nick Pavetta out of the game on opening day, yeah, that was—I mean—that was absolutely the right decision. The, yeah. it was, he got and he got booed, um, but it was the right time. Ninety-seven pitches. I mean, I thought, all right, maybe you can let him finish the inning, but that's about it. I mean, he could have gone one more batter, but that's about it. So I'm I'm okay with him taking him out at that point. But Pavetta, the, the play beforehand, um, I guess I think it was a fly out to, to center field, and he turns around and he sees Kapler coming out of the dugout and he makes a gesture. And obviously th throws an F-bomb, and you can tell that he's pissed and doesn't want to talk to Kapler when Kapler comes to get the ball. Kapler puts his fist up for a fist pound, doesn't get it, and Pavetta walks right off the mound. Now, after the game, Pavetta says, oh, it was the right thing to do. He took me out at the right time. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. But in the moment, he wasn't happy with it. And so it makes you wonder, is he just saying, saying it to you know make sure that 
you know, the Ducks are in a row because, the, you know, the Phillies had the what, – what game was it where they didn't open their locker room right away to make sure everybody was ha- – I think that was the – it might have been the home opener um, where they, they kept the locker room closed the next 10 minutes. Was that because of the, uh, the fog machines and the, the laser light show afterwards? Or? How, how, boy, how, we, haven't, we didn't even, we didn't yeah, even touch on that. I don't, even, I don't really know what to say about that. <laughs> but, <laughs> we didn't uh, even touch on that. Uh, but, I mean, that's so you're right. I mean, there's players within the first week, and then you have – Ken Rosenthal, who wrote in The Athletic uh, all about the manager getting uh, being on the hot seat, not necessarily getting fired, but being on the hot seat, and he had a couple of – well, he had an anonymous source that was from a rival executive, and I think, Bob, you have the quote, so if you want to read it for the listeners – and then we could talk about it. I, I thought what he, the things that he wrote about what people from around baseball think of Gabe Kapler was even more damning than the fact that there might be five or six players, if not more, in that clubhouse who are not too happy with him. Sure. Uh, Kapler has shown a measure of humility and accountability in his public comments, a good sign. Still, none of that will matter unless he starts using better judgment. And if he flops, as many in the industry suspect he will, then the scrutiny will fall on the man who hired him, General Manager Matt Klentak. As one rival official put it, you had all these managers available, Aaron Boone, Alex Cora, Mickey Calloway, Dave Martinez. You had Joe Girardi and John Farrell out there as well, and you hired the train wreck. The train wreck. So uh, that is the quote from his source. Uh, and then Rosenthal continues, such an assessment might be overly harsh this early in the season, you think. But if uh, not, <laughs> most in the sport believe Kapler in his first week was indeed off the rails. So, yes, uh, I mean, that—that that is, it's uh, not a good start for Gabe Kapler in terms of uh, perception of his performance around the league and, and really in his own clubhouse. And if people from around the league feel that way about him, if and if I mean not even the, the train wreck quote is is just one quote, right? I mean that's just one guy. But to you know, Kenny, wrote, let, me, let me ask you something. You, you're uh, you're a guy that's kind of tuned in. You've, you've followed yeah. teams. You've been around teams. Uh, you're you kind of go through the grind of the the reporter role. Yeah. Um. To what extent do quotes like that? Uh, get fed to reporters and, and it's just like, you know what? We don't like what the Phillies are doing. Screw them. And, and so I'll give you a quote uh, and I'm an anonymous rival exec and I'm going to destroy them. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it the, happens. It happens. Or I mean, is that really an honest assessment in most cases when, when typically when, when this type of thing happens? So what, so what I'm betting is Kenny Rosenthal is talking to somebody else. And if you really want to try and figure out who it was, take a look at one of Rosenthal's next story or two. Yeah. And see who it's about and who we talk to, because what probably happened is as he was doing an interview um, with another general manager from another team, and you know in the end turns off his you know recorder or whatever is just talking, and happens to say so. What do you think of what happened with Kapler? And this guy says, "Are we off the record?" And Rosenthal says, "Yeah, yeah, we're we're on background. We're off the record." And the guy gives that quote. And then Rosenthal uses it, but sources it so that you don't know who it is. So, but there are ways to kind of figure it out, and you just got to keep keep following who he's writing about in the next couple of his next couple of stories, and you'll probably figure it out. It's not like he went out of his way and say, you know, I'm going to write about Gabe Kapler. Let me call this general manager or this owner and see what they have to say about it. It's not that. It's it's more that it's it a conversation. Conversational piece, it comes up yeah. in conversation, and somebody says something to you, and you're like, "Wow, that's interesting." I mean, nine times out of ten, that's how you get your sourced material. Like, you don't go fishing for it all the time, unless you're doing some kind of investigative story. 
you're not you're not you know digging for a sourced quote what'll end up happening is you'll be sitting there talking to somebody and they'll say off the record blah 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 and then you got to figure out how do I how can I get this into a story and then you know you got to make sure that they're okay with it and stuff like that and tell them how you're going to couch it and whatever and you know most of the time they'll be fine with it and 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 then you got your sourced quote um and and guys in professional sports are smart enough now that they know if they say something in front of a reporter that it's going to end up in a story somewhere they just got to you know they, they if they trust the reporter they know that it will that they'll be protected um so that's kind of what happens and before we move on from this um because we want to wrap this up in a, in a couple minutes here do you think that there is uh, any truth to that? Do you think, I mean, the whole premise of the story was that managers on the hot seat and that, yes, it can happen in April. And, yes, Gabe Kapler, after this this rocky, uh, that may be generous, but his rocky first week is, in fact, on the hot seat. Do you, do you think that's true? Uh, yeah, I do. And the reason I think it's true is because of where it's coming from. I mean, there, the, you know, Ken Rosenthal's a plugged-in guy. I mean, he's... He's one of the he's the you know the equivalent of Woj in in, in basketball. Uh, he's the equivalent of Shefty in in football. I mean, he's you know he's that guy for baseball. One of those guys. I mean, there's a few of them, but I mean, he's one of those guys, and he's more plugged in than than almost any writer uh, that I know in baseball. And so when he's reporting it, it's not like it's just somebody throwing something against a wall to see if it'll stick. He's actually reporting something that. You know, there's a little bit of conversation about, there's a little bit of smoke about, and maybe even something that he's heard from within the Phillies organization from above uh, Gabe Kapler about. And so if that's the case, that's why it's going into his story. So, yeah, I do, I do buy it. And I do think that we're looking at a situation where he's going to be given a little bit of rope, but not a lot of rope. And I, and I don't think that he's automatically getting the season. I think he, if things don't Im- improve with him on a game-by-game basis, I think Kapler could be shown the door by the All-Star break. Wow. Okay. Uh, I guess that'll be something to kind of keep an eye on here as we uh, as we go forward. I don't think you can really turn away from it, honestly. Not even a matter of keeping an eye on it. I think it is still going to be the dominant story here as uh, as we go through April and and really as we turn the page into the summer over the first couple of months of the spring. Um, before we we kind of get to and we like to hit on a you know a general baseball topic to close up the show uh the last thing that i i briefly want to talk about is jp crawford yes um obviously has not been a very good start for crawford uh 24 plate appearances he only has one hit and he's hitting 043 ops is 127 i mean the numbers are absolutely hideous and i wrote about him today on the website on crossingbroad.com and I tried to stay away from numbers uh, this early on. I, I really didn't want to use the numbers to illustrate that he was having a rough start because I think that everybody understands that he's completely overmatched at the plate right now. But the numbers don't tell the whole story because, I mean, if J.P. Crawford plays tomorrow night and goes three for four, you know, he quadruples his numbers, right? And, and so I don't think that the numbers really give an accurate you know, depiction or accurately illustrate just how bad he's been. And before I get back into really what I wrote about specifically, I mean, what's your take on J.P. Crawford? What have you noticed from him so far this season? Um, is, is this something that you think could be rectified? You know, obviously he had a slow start a year ago, and then he kind of turned things around midway through, earned a promotion to Philadelphia at the end of the season. Do you think he rebounds from this, or is there genuine reason to be concerned about his performance? Well, how about both? I mean, I think that there's certainly a reason to be concerned, but I think that he's also been 
the guy kind of guy who's shown in the past that he can bounce back from a slow start. And again, it's been 23 at-bats, and he looks overmatched. You're right. His swing is way too long. He's way too far off the plate. He can't hit anything on the outer half. There's no way. He's rolling over everything. Everything's a weak ground ball to second base. So, um, and, and I think that his last at-bat in the ninth inning on Sunday against the Marlins, when he sit there, sat there and looked at three strikes, shows a complete lack of confidence in himself at this point. He's just kind of, kind of hoping to take, you know, get into a, a hitter's count by by working the count, and that, that's not even working right for him. Um, so, but do I? Th- is it possible to get corrected? Sure. I mean, he's he's certainly still young enough. He's certainly a guy who's shown he can do it in the past. That said, I I do have a concern that he's not going to be given that opportunity. I I, I sometimes believe. Players need to work their way out of a slump in sports. And in baseball, in this case, you have to hit your way out of it. Um, the Phillies don't have a, a, a natural shortstop on the team. I mean, I, mean I, I don't think Scott Kingery is the answer. I think you saw that tonight. Yeah, I mean, you know, just, right? he, doesn't, he doesn't have he the doesn't instincts. He doesn't have a feel for the position. Right, yeah. yeah, he doesn't have the instinct for the position. So, And if you look at the minor league system, there's nothing. like There's not even a, like a good veteran down there. That you could say comes up and, and fills in for him. I mean, you know, I guess you can give Pedro Florimon a few starts at shortstop if you really need to. Um, maybe Cesar can give a, give you a couple starts over there, and, and you play Kingery at second. I mean, that's a possibility too. But I think that Crawford has to be given a chance to work his way out of it. They can't just do. Or they sat him one game, but what does it? What good does it do if you sit him again tomorrow and the next day, or if you send him back down? I'm not certain that that is really the, the answer either. So I think the Phillies have to really approach it with kid gloves and figure out what's the the best thing for him. And this might be something that you and I don't know or, or the general public doesn't know, but that the Phillies know better because they know him as a person. And a lot of times you have to know the personality of a player to, to know is he the kind of person who's going to who's going to figure it out or is he the kind of person who needs to be sent down to figure it out. You this know kind what I'm of saying? ties like, into what I was talking yeah. about earlier. Does Kapler feel pressure, like legitimate pressure to win now, right? Like I've got to stockpile wins. I have to get as many wins as I can to kind of buy myself some breathing room, right? And if that's the case, then you're not going to turn to a guy that, that has one hit in you know, 24, 25 plate appearances. That's not going to be your guy. Uh, but with that said, I, they, they've actually played him a little bit more than, than maybe – some other managers would at this point. I mean, Nick Williams has 17 plate appearances right now, and and Crawford has seven more than that. So that's almost two games worth of, of at bats more than uh, Nick Williams. So I mean, you know, Kapler's given him an opportunity in the early going, but you just wonder how much longer he, he's going to hang in there. And what I wrote about on the site was kind of twofold. I see two issues with him. Well, what's the thing that the scouts really loved about J.P. Crawford? They talked about plate discipline, pitch selection, and an advanced approach right? Those were the things that made him great. You know, that, those were the things that made him such an elite prospect. The guy's not a power hitter. Um, you know, he, he can certainly hit, you know, he could be a doubles hitter, um, but he's not going to be a, a 25-30 home run guy. He doesn't have what we call an elite hit tool. Um, but what he does is he's good at working counts, getting counts in his favor, uh, being patient, being selective, and, and finding pitches that he can capitalize upon. Uh, and to this point, he has shown no ability this season to do that. He struck out eight times. He's only walked once, uh, and I talked specifically in a, 
about in a bat yesterday that he had in the sixth inning against the Marlins uh, where he comes up and he sees six pitches, which is great. Gabe Kapler actually talked about it before the game tonight. He says, well, you know, the thing about JP is, and you guys may not know this, but he's seeing a ton of pitches. And I mean, he said it with a straight face and, 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 you know, good for him. I think you have to defend the player at this point, especially a kid that's 23 years old. And he's obviously probably beating himself up over his start and all, but he comes to the plate in the sixth inning. He sees six pitches. Not one is a single strike. Five of the six pitches are cutters between 85 and 86 miles per hour. So that means he saw the same pitch five times uh, in the same at bat, and he failed to make an adjustment on it. The first two pitches were both out of the strike zone. He swung and missed at both. So instead of taking command of the at bat and being in control of the bat, ahead 2-0, he finds himself quickly in the hole 0-2. To his credit, he works the count back full, which is great. Now, you know, I guess that's the, the positive takeaway from the at-bat. But then he offers again at a cutter outside of the strike zone, check swing, strike three. And I think that that is indicative of a tentative, a tentative player uh, that's second-guessing himself. Uh, and I think that that's, that's fully what you're seeing with him. And, and you alluded to it earlier. The other technical issue that I see with him is that he's too far away from the plate. Right. But I, I wrote about it saying it's kind of that's sort of an oversimplification. If you really go back and look at when he started to get hot at Lehigh last year, you'll notice that he's very loose in the batter's box. And, you know, I always talk about hitters needing to have some flexibility to be able to get to different pitches in different zones. And you need to be an athletic hitter. And he's a guy that that was very loose in the box. He was a little bit more vertical. It was a slight knee bend. The, the elbows were kind of drawn into his body, and he was very loose at the plate. Like if you were a soccer goalie and you were defending a, a penalty shot, right, you, you want to be like on your toes, nice and loose, a lot of coverage. You want to be athletic, be able to get some range in your swing. And what you're seeing now is that he's still off the plate about where he was a year ago, but there's more of an, a knee bend and his hands are drawn much closer to his body, and the elbow points out. And and what ends up happening because of that is that he doesn't get as much plate coverage. It's very hard to get your hands to the baseball on the outer half of the plate, and so that's why you're seeing him roll over a lot because he's, he's swinging pitches that are really only in one or two zones on the middle or the inner half. He's not able to drive the ball with any authority away from them, you know, uh, on the outer half of the plate, and, and he's really limited himself. And I don't really understand what the Phillies did or what he did or where he got this idea that this was going to be a positive you know adjustment or alteration to his swing but he's too long he has no coverage and and because of what he's done and the alterations he's made to his swing he is too far away from the plate you combine that with a guy that has no feel for the strike zone and no confidence and that's what you see right now And, and I know that he he took a ton of crap last year and to his credit he bounced back and had a great second half in triple a but uh, I have genuine concern. I mean, if, if J.P. Crawford was supposed to be a significant upgrade over Freddie Galvis, where is that upgrade coming from, that he has a better approach? I mean, he doesn't have the same pop, uh, at least not at this point. And, uh, you know, I, I would say the defense at best is a wash in his favor. So, what do you, I'm concerned. I, I mean, I need somebody that really loves J.P. Crawford to, to talk up J.P. Crawford for me and get me back on board because I am concerned with what I see. And I, I, I wanted to say preach, Bob, because that's that's some good stuff right there. It's a good breakdown of, of his approach. But my concern is less with the player and more with the team. Because is this an adjustment that he's making on his own? Or is this something that they that the team looked at and said, well, this is how we want you to, to, 
change it up and 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 approach uh, at bats at the plate. Like, are, are I they, fully get the sense put, that it's a team. I think it's the yeah. team. Yeah. So that so then they're the concern is with the team. What are they doing to him? Because I think Crawford. You know, maybe the, I don't know what they're. I don't know what they're trying to get out of. Him. I really don't. I mean, teams are just going to pitch him out out or half, and he's not going to be able to get there. And that's it. I mean, there's no. They're not going to come in on him. They're not going to give him anything on the inner half where he can drive the ball. So I mean, I don't know what the approach is. They have to completely rework this again. And maybe the solution is you say to Crawford, go back to doing what you were doing before. Just go back to it, and let's see what happens. Give him another thirty at bats, forty at bats, doing it the way he was doing it before this before this season, and see if he doesn't start to turn it around a little bit. Maybe he sees the ball better closer to the plate. Maybe his swing isn't as long; it's more compact. Who knows? But I mean, it's got to be better than what it's been over these first nine games. Uh, sure does, because they don't have another option. Uh, they don't have a guy in the minor league system that can come up and fill that role. And uh, you know, you can maybe get by for a game here, game there with guys like Cesar Hernandez and Scott Kingery, but they're not long-term viable solutions. So he's got to figure this thing out. And if you talk about the Phillies being a 500 team, or you know, he, <laughs> this seems like a pipe dream now after the first nine games. But uh, if you want to talk about them as a potential playoff contender, uh, this is something that needs to get fixed. The guy doesn't have to hit 330. Uh, but they need something out of him. Uh, they need him, him to at least be a competent hitter, and, and he has not shown any indication that he can do that at this point. Um, all right, so before we get out of here, let's talk about Trevor Bauer. Uh, I believe this is who you wanted to talk about, so why don't you yeah. tell the people uh, what Trevor Bauer uh, got so, himself into so here. Trevor Bauer was in a pitcher's duel with Ian Kennedy. I mean, what a what a crazy pitcher's duel that is. I mean, if I told you it was going to be a one nothing game pitched by <laughs> Ian Kennedy and Trevor Bauer, you would have laughed at me, right? Um, but I guess the weather was really kind of crappy in Cleveland, and uh, it was really cold and, and frigid and windy, and so it really played into the pitcher's favor. Um, and uh, the Indians lose one nothing when Bauer gives up a home run, and I forget who it was from Lucas the Lucas Duda. Duda. Duda hit the home run, okay. So, um, so he gives up the home run, and then after the game, they start talking to him, and uh, he blames the the pace of play for the reason that he wasn't quite ready to throw uh, pitches to Lucas Duda because he wasn't warmed up right, and he felt like he needed a little bit more time because the weather's so bad, and it's not conducive to uh, being you know staying strong and staying healthy and, and not hurting yourself. Um, when you're out there warming up and you only have let you have less time to warm up in that kind of weather, and, and I think yeah, we I both think that the I think Major League Baseball dropped it from two twenty five or two thirty in between innings now to two oh five to two oh five right, and he yes. says, and I'll give you the quote, I have it right here. Uh, I was like, look, I'll take the fine if I need to, but I'm not going to put myself at risk, and I'm not going to put the team at risk of me having exactly what happened happen. Bowers said, throw a pitch that you're not ready to compete on because you're still trying to get loose and it gets hit over the fence and we lose because of it, not because of it, but it was certainly a contributing factor. Uh, and so that was his explanation as to why he was so upset uh, about being rushed along there. I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with him. I, I'm never, I've not been a fan of, of a lot of what Rob Manfred's tried, tried to implement, things that have come up. I mean, they, they've even discussed, you know, the stupid put the runner on second base after the 11th uh, inning. The international tiebreaker. They uh, do that in, like, ASA softball. Uh, yeah. It's, that's a disaster. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. to put that into Major League Baseball is a joke. And the fact that it even comes up in conversation tells you that it's something that's, you know, been discussed, even if, it's, even if it was dismissed. Um, but it's been discussed in, in some kind of war room at the league. And that, I'm just not a fan of what Manfred's doing. I, I don't think the pace of play is – I don't think he's f identifying the right things 
to change pace of play. And 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 there are other things that could be focused on and looked at that wouldn't be as uh, you know as you know dangerous to a player's health as I'm not warm warm enough yet in a 30 degree day. Yeah, it seems like the, a strange thing to kind of to dial in on. I, I don't really understand that at all. I think that you, you see now, like on the youth level, uh, at the collegiate level, high school level, people are going to great lengths to protect pitchers, right? Pitch counts, uh, limiting the amount of pitches that pitchers can throw in a given time frame. And now you're going to say, all right, listen, stretching's, you know, it's paramount to, to remaining healthy. Um, we're going to put you on these specified throwing programs to, to make sure that you stay healthy. But I'll tell you what, in April, when it's 29 degrees and it, you're pitching we need you to speed things up it just seems like the weird place to make a cut so I agree with you in that sense and and I sympathize with Trevor Bauer because you know obviously he's a putting himself at risk for injury and b he's in a tie game in the late innings and he's not ready to go and and he grooves the first pitch and it was the first pitch of the seventh inning that Duda hit out and uh, it might have cost his uh, team a game because of it. it very very strange and he actually goes on later in that interview and specifically I was just, I was just names say. Manfred yeah I mean he yeah. he goes right at him and I mean he says basically it's it's ridiculous and he says but if that's what he wants to do then whatever you know what else did he do in that in that same story what other what was another quote in there that was kind of interesting yeah, so i'm like all on board with him i'm like yeah you go ahead trevor bauer <laughs> I, I i'm totally with you and then he says uh he, he kind of you know how this goes though you get all fired up and you take it a little bit further than maybe you need to he says since i don't cheat like a lot of guys and put stuff on my hand just grab the ball and throw it my pitches were somewhat inconsistent it's like a cue ball. It slips out of your hand, but it is what it is. It's worse for the hitters. I was looking forward to it. I thought I pitched pretty well overall. So um, no problem with his, his complaint with uh, Rob Manfred. Uh, no complaint with, with protecting himself or you know feeling that he, his team was put at a disadvantage there. I think he was totally in line to say that. Uh, since I don't cheat like a lot of guys and put stuff on my hand, though, I don't know. Uh, you know I don't know how much he – did we really need to go there? Uh, and I think it almost kind of discredits the rest of his point by doing so. In the immortal words of Jesse the Body Ventura, <laughs> win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. <laughs> is, is that how you want to wrap this well, thing up? Is that, is, is that, I mean, it seems like a hell of a way to go out, right? But it's yeah. baseball, man. I mean, yeah. guys are always guys are always going to look for any competitive edge that they can. It was why the steroid thing blew up for so many years because guys were always looking for a competitive edge and if pitchers are putting some kind of tacky substance on their fingers so that they get better grip in cold weather then that's what they're doing and if you're not doing it trevor bauer uh you know good for you but at the same time don't don't dime people out for doing it especially if a large majority of players are doing it because if that's the case and everybody's okay with it, then there's no reason to say it. Yeah, and it just totally shifts the story away from what it really was supposed to be. And it was a guy making a valid complaint, and then it, it just kind of goes off the rails once you do that. So, all right. Uh, I, I think we're good there, right? Yeah, we're hitting, we're, the, uh, we're hitting the, what, the 120 mark? Yeah, so yeah it's, it's, I mean, we're, 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 we're rolling over past an hour. Yeah. An hour hour's nothing for That's us, what you get When you get a week and you don't get to talk about Gabe Kapler, I mean, this is, this is what you get. I know. I mean, geez, just imagine what will happen when he actually uh, – manages well i mean our show will be like 12 minutes is that going to happen or <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll gladly take that you know like i said last week i want to see the guy do well but uh i don't know 
Okay. Um, well, well, we'll see. But uh, we want to thank everybody for tuning in uh, to this latest episode of uh, Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast here on the Crossing Broad Network. Once again, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo, and you can follow me on Twitter at AntSanPhilly. And Bob Wankel, our Phillies writer for Crossing Broad, you can follow him at BW Crossing Broad on Twitter. Um, and I guess that'll be it until next week. Uh, we've got a big week ahead of us, and uh, we'll see. Hopefully the Phillies will be above 500, and we'll have nothing but good things to say next week, Bob. Yeah, I mean, they have, what, the Reds for two more, the Tampa Bay Rays this weekend, and then the Braves on Monday night. So uh, yeah. we got, uh, looks like, what, six games there between now and then? So and it, all, yeah. all against teams that they should beat. Yeah, four and two, and they're over 500, and we're all positive next week. So yeah. that's the well, let's, ho- let's hope we are. And until then, uh, don't forget to check out our other uh, shows on, on the Crossing Broad Network. Um, we have, oh, big r- reminder, Wednesday night we have the uh, live broadcast um, down downtown. Um, oh, where is that at, Bob? I completely forgot where it's at. Throw me uh, under the bus now. <laughs> <laughs> None of us remember. No, it's uh, we're doing a live broadcast um, on Wednesday uh, at uh, Six Feet Under Gastro Pub, which is yeah, seven twenty-seven Walnut Street. Yes, seven twenty-seven Walnut Street. Sponsored by I Do I Will. It starts at seven p.m. and it's also going to be a uh, watch party for Game One of the Flyers Penguin series. Um, and I'm going to be there uh, to do uh, you know, to chime in and, and talk about the game, so uh, Flyers fans could come out as well and, and, and check out the game with us. I'm sure we'll talk a little Phillies as well. Gabe Kapler can't be can't be too far off of everybody's mind uh, at that point. And then um, uh, we have other shows on the on the uh, network. You can follow Snow the Goalie, which is the Flyers podcast, uh, and then there's. Uh, it's, it's always, always soccer in Philadelphia, always soccer in Philadelphia. Kincaid, yeah. Yep, that's the uh, union crossing one. Crossing broadcast. Which is the regular one. And then there's that well, there's that other European soccer one that yeah. Russ and Phil Kydell do. Crossing Broad FC. Yes. Yeah, Crossing Broad FC. I could never – I don't know. I'm not yeah, a soccer guy. a lot guy, to remember, yeah. I, come on. I, I know. And I should write it down. And yeah. Russ Joy is going to be real mad at me that I kind of yeah. – You will be getting a Slack message on this one. Yeah. I will. I will. You didn't do it right, Anthony. <laughs> so he'll 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 uh, but I got to record with him tomorrow anyway so get to get ready for the playoffs but anyway uh until next week uh he's Bob I'm Anthony thanks for tuning in <laughs>